1 Corinthians chapter 1. Well, three of the Gospels tell the story of the rich young ruler. Maybe you remember that story. And this story of this rich young ruler is a man who had social status within that first century culture. He had prestige. He really had everything that you would want if you were wanting wanting to be important in that society. He had power. He was a ruler in a local area. He had riches, which meant that he would have been highly esteemed and had influence. With riches would have come probably a good education and access to important people. He was religious. He actually even boasted that he, he kept the rules of God, even from his youth. So from a child all the way to his young adult years, he was very religious. And according to his value system, and really the value system of this world, he was considered important, successful, and really had everything a person could want. Well, except he didn't. Because he didn't actually have assurance where he was going to go when he died. He didn't know if he had eternal life. And so he found Jesus. And the Bible says that he ran to Jesus and knelt before Jesus. And he asked that famous question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Everything else in his life, he had either gotten because it was given to him maybe through an inheritance or something like that, or he did something to earn it. He achieved it in some way. And this man of worldly importance, he he could compare himself to other people and he could consider himself to be a pretty good person. He kept God's laws in his mind. So compared to other people, he was pretty well off. Certainly God had the same value system as him. God thought he was a good person. That's what he thought. But Jesus countered this belief system by revealing to him or showing to him the laws of God and how righteous God is and how holy he is and how sinful this man was. This man shrugged that off, you know, and he said, no, no, I've, I've kept all those laws. I've been a good person ever since I was a youth. So then Jesus responded and he said, get rid of everything. Sell your riches, give it to the poor and come and follow me. And and if you remember the story, the point of the story is not that rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. That's not the point of the story. What Jesus was trying to do was tell him to abandon the things that he trusted. And what was that? It was his status. It was his achievements. It was his riches. Jesus was showing this man the obstacles that were preventing him from trusting fully in Jesus Christ. And so, this man, the Bible says, he loved those riches. He loved that status. He valued those worldly standards more than he valued following Christ. And so he walked away sad. That man walked away as one who was still perishing. And as people looked on, they were shocked to see this. They, they were shocked to see a man who, who in that society was considered important. And they, and they said to Jesus, if someone like this can't get to heaven by his status and by his importance and by the things he does, in other words, if he can't do something to earn eternal life, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, no one can, which shocked everyone there. He says, with man, it's impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. In other words, you can't save yourself. No one can save themselves. In fact, you have no part in your salvation. God is the one who saves and God alone. This was the message that Jesus preached. That's why Jesus came to this earth. He came to pay for sin's price on the cross so that all who who believe can be saved. And Jesus preached this message, and this was the message that Paul the Apostle preached. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, what we see is Paul presenting his philosophy of preaching, which is really Jesus' philosophy of preaching. And and here in chapter 1, Paul warned them, 
Don't preach a message that's man-centered, that trusts in man's wisdom or man's power. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so from verse 17 of chapter 1 down to chapter 2, verse 5, we said that Paul really taught this, that we must preach the cross because it is how God demonstrates his power and his wisdom. And so the last two weeks, we have been teaching on why we should employ cross-centered preaching. In the first week, we learned that cross-centered preaching demonstrates God's power. It demonstrates that God's word is powerful, but man's words and ways are empty. And then we learned last week that Cross-centered preaching demonstrates God is the source of true wisdom. It actually puts God's wisdom on display and shows that man-derived wisdom is foolishness. So we're going to look at the third and fourth. I'll fit two of them in this week, and we'll actually end the series this week, and next week we'll pick up and do the first five verses of 1 Corinthians. But here's here's the third reason. Here's the third reason we should employ cross-centered preaching, and that is that God saves by his divine call, and man lacks the wisdom and power to save. Cross-centered preaching actually demonstrates that God is the one who saves by his divine call, and we are not able to save ourselves. We just had this text of scripture read, so I'm not going to read through the entire text, but let's look at verse 26, 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Paul writes, by inspiration, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Paul's aim here is to humble these Christians by having them consider God's divine call to salvation. The Corinthians, if you remember this, the Corinthians were boasting in who they followed. They were boasting in their own achievements. They ranked each other by, if you followed Paul, that you were this high. And if you followed Apollos, and, and they, they, were, they were considering that their status as something that was important within the church and before God. They started to adopt the world system that valued intellectualism and status in society, and power and prestige. And they began to use preaching to actually elevate man and elevate self instead of elevating Christ and his cross. And so to show the foolishness of this, Paul says, listen, consider your calling. Verse 26, consider your calling. This word consider actually means to look, to, to, to see. And the idea is look back at your calling. Look back at the moment of your conversion. In other words, he's saying, you're boasting in yourself. You're boasting in your achievements. And it's time for you to have a reality check. Now, have you ever had a reality check? When my wife goes away and I'm left alone with the kids, I have a reality check. And I open the refrigerator and I look at the table and I think, where's, where's the food that's normally there? you know? And then how do these clothes get washed, right? And in those times, you look back and you go, I am so thankful for my wife, you know, right? And, and that's just a, a temporal thing of life. But here in, in, in regard to salvation, he's saying, when you, when you start boasting, when you start thinking about how great you are, you know what you should do? Look back and think back, okay, when I was converted, what happened? Why was I converted? Why were you saved? How did you become saved? And what's the answer to that? Well, he says that here. Consider your calling. What is this calling Paul is referring to? Well, this is our, this is our, this is our salvation from God's perspective. This is the divine call at one's conversion. It's sometimes called the effectual call. Now, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And I don't necessarily want to go through the entire thing we talked about then. But it is so important for us to consider the divine call and to understand it. In fact, that's his whole point here. If you don't understand the divine call, you can't really consider your calling. 
And so what is the divine call? Remember we said a couple weeks ago that really salvation can be viewed from two perspectives. From God's perspective, that's the divine perspective, and then from our perspective. And if you go to Romans chapter 10, you can actually see the order of salvation from, from man's perspective. In other words, God says he sends preachers, they preach the word, and people listen to the word, and they receive that by faith, and then they call upon the Lord to save them. That's the order of salvation according to man's perspective. And so you, and, and within that, you see this general call to say, come to Christ. And then you see this call of the sinner to call out to Christ to be saved. In fact, we can see that. Well, here's my definition of a divine call. Let me get to this first. We can see that with Jesus when he, when he preached. This is one of Jesus' sermons. He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So who is this call to? It's to everyone, right? If anyone. This is a, a general call. This is the, the preacher's call. He, he's calling out saying, if, if you thirst, if you, if you know that you have a need that's not met, that's a spiritual need, come to me. I'm the only one that can fulfill it. I'm Jesus Christ. This was also preached by Paul or by Peter. He preached this. It shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Remember, standing in front of him were people who crucified Jesus <laughs> and he, or were somehow participating in it. And he was saying, listen, you can turn from your sin and call upon the name of the Lord. And whoever does so will be saved. And so here what you see is you see this general call and you see this the sinner's call out to call out to be saved, to call upon the name of the Lord. But then we also see this salvation from the, the divine perspective. That's really what he's talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. In fact, let me go back and give you the definition that I put up here for the divine call. The divine call is this. It's, it's God, should be an apostrophe there. It's God's call at your conversion to convict you of your sin, to convince you of Christ's redeeming work, and to convey upon you the grace to believe. Now think about this definition as we go through this. You might want to write that down if you really want to know what the divine call is. This is God's view of salvation from the divine perspective of your salvation. There was a time at your conversion that God called you and that call convicted you of your sin. It convinced you of your need for Jesus and then it conveyed upon you the grace to believe. And we actually can see that in Romans chapter 8 and verse 30 that whoever, sorry, that um, and those whom he predestined, he called. So there's that divine call. So before time, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. That's in time. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And glorified is actually at the, the end when life is over. This is the order of salvation from God's perspective. So you have, you have the order of salvation from man's perspective. Again, we saw that in in Romans chapter 10 a couple weeks ago. But this is salvation from God's perspective. And the divine call is a work of grace. It's the call that converts the soul. It's a, a call that effectually works. And I'm going to talk about this today, but also do very, very gently, because there's a sense of, of uh, a paradox with all this. How, does, how do those go together? Well, we know that God's divine call and, and man's call do go together, but how, how salvation works from God's perspective, honestly, there's a lot of mystery to that. I'm not going to pretend that I can explain the intricacies of salvation from God's perspective. We know it's true because the Bible says it's true. And so we believe it, but we can't fully comprehend it. In fact, that's why after Paul ends 11 chapters of speaking about this wonderful work of salvation, this wonderful gift of salvation, he kind of in this sigh of like, wow, this is amazing. He goes, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom, the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways are past finding out. It's like, this is so far beyond me. This is, this is there's so many things I just don't understand. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. And from our perspective, all are called to believe the gospel. So if, if you're in here today without Christ, Christ calls you to come to him in faith. 
If you don't, you are held responsible before God. And from God's perspective, your salvation, if you're a Christian, your salvation was initiated by his call. In fact, you can see that in verse 1. Go back to verse 1. Literally the first thing Paul talked about, Paul wrote down, was about the the divine call upon his life. Look at verse 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Remember, remember Paul's call to salvation was a call to salvation and to be an apostle. That was on the road to Damascus. Remember, he was going down this road with an entourage of people, and then Christ appeared to him, and he, he called out, Saul, Saul. And when that happened, he fell to the ground. The Bible says that his eyes were blind. He couldn't see anything anymore. But then spiritual light radiated into his soul and opened up his spiritual eyes, and he was able to see the truth, not visually see it, but spiritually see that he was a sinner. Christ Jesus is the Lord. And when when God called him, Paul turned to Christ in faith. Look at verse number two. Again, we find the divine call, salvation from God's perspective to the church, in verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. So notice that, to the church. What is, what is the literal meaning of the church? It is called out ones, literally those who have been called out of the world to Christ. They're sanctified. What is sanctified? They're set apart from the world under Christ. So here you have these ones who are called out of the world, who are set apart under Christ. And who did that? Who did that? Those that he called to be saints. It was God. So the church are those who are called out of this world, set apart under God. And notice, those who were divinely called are those who make up the church. In other words, if you're truly in the body of Christ, if you're truly in Christ, then you came into that because you were called. And, and, and I'm, I'm trying to help you see these parallels here. You have this heavenly calling, and you have this human perspective, this human call, and you can see that actually in the rest of verse 2. Called to be saints together, so there you go, that divine call, with all those who in every place, here we go, human perspective, call upon the name of the Lord. So those who are called by God to be saved are those who call upon God to be saved. Does that make sense? So in verse 2, we see here these two calls, the divine call of God and the sinner's call to be saved. And we can see this throughout the scripture. You see this, this parallel, this par- these parallel calls throughout the scripture. Remember Abraham. Here was Abraham, a guy, just a regular old guy in Ur. And he probably worshipped the moon god. We don't know exactly what his life was like then. But he was a normal person living in the normal world, and that was until God called him. Hebrews eleven eight says, By faith Abraham obeyed when? When he was called. When he was called. So Abraham, Abraham had faith and obeyed as a result of what? God's divine call. So this divine call is how a person is granted faith in Christ. And again, I'm not going to try to go through and explain how it all works, but we know that it does. Well, that's a verse for later. I'll get to that in a second. Look at verse 9. We see this divine call again in verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into what? Into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And again, notice that verb there, were called. And if you're into the intricacies of grammar, Here, this is an aorist verb, which means it's something that happened in the past at a point in time. It's a passive, which means God did it to you. It's not you calling upon God. This is God calling you. And that happened at our conversion. So how can we be confident that we are in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? Like, How can you be confident that you are in Christ? It's because God was the one who called you into the fellowship of his son. And this call is seen actually most clearly in verse 24. And again, remember, if you remember last week, we saw there were two categories. 
you, you saw there are two categories, those who are, who are trusting the way of God and those who are trusting the way of man. In verse 18, we saw that. We saw there are those who are trusting the way of man. The, those people are perishing. Then we saw those who are trusting the way of God. That's the cross of Jesus Christ. Those are those who are being saved. So those two categories. Verse 21, we saw the categories again. We find those who look for wisdom. They try to find God through human wisdom. And then verse 20, um, 21, we see that there's those who believe the word of God. And so they're believing in Christ's work on the cross. And then verse 24, again, here we see that he presents conversion from God's perspective. And actually, if you go back to verse 21, there's, there's conversion from man's perspective. We are to believe those who are being saved, those who are in Christ, or those who believe the gospel. And then he comes back around to verse 24 and says, then there are also those within that same category. We could call them those who are called. And the called are the same as those who are being saved. It's the same as those who believe. In other words, these are all three terms that describe the same type of person that is a Christian. And so notice in verse 24, all who are divinely called are saved. Did you get that? All who are divinely called are saved. So this can't be the general call because therefore that would be universalism. If this was the general call or the sinner, then if this was the general call to be saved, everyone to come be saved, and this would be, mean that everyone would be saved. We don't believe that is true. The Bible doesn't teach that. There wouldn't be two categories if that was the case. So this here then is the divine call at conversion to convict you of your sin, to convince you that Christ's redeeming work is true and to convey upon you the grace to believe. Which takes us back to verse 26. Look back in verse 26. He says here, so now for consider your calling. Consider your calling. So think about all these things that we've talked about, the divine call of God, and consider that. Look back and think about the time when you came to Christ. And would you do that with me this morning? Just, just think back. If you're a believer in here, think back to that time that you recognized your sin and you called upon the Lord to save you. I mean, even if you were saved at a young age, think about how God viewed you before your conversion. Think about who you were before you came to Christ. You were a lost sinner. You were an enemy of God. Every person enters into this world as a sinner by choice and a sinner by nature. Our hearts are dark. There's no spiritual light within us. That is until God calls us to be saved. Think about what you were like before you were saved. You, you, and, and think about it, what it was that resurrected your soul. You didn't resurrect your own soul. It was God who saved you. So, so, and think about this way, what was it that saved you? What was it that, that brought you into the fellowship of Jesus Christ? And the answer is, it was the divine call. It was nothing that you did. And this is the whole point. He's going to go through this, and his whole point is, is that God does not call you because of who you are or what you do. In fact, look at verse 26. He, he lists three categories the world used uses to consider themselves worthy of credit before God. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. These three areas represent the values the world has. These three categories represent how the world measures themselves up with each other. The world uses their own merits their own value system to, to, to rank themselves before each other, but also before God. And, and they use wisdom, their own wisdom. They use their own power. They use their own nobility, their own prestige. And they believe that God views life like that as well. I mean, just look around this world and consider how people view themselves, right? If you're in this class, you, you rank in this place. If you have this kind of status, you, you rank here. And people then think, well, if that's how humans view the world, then obviously that's how God views the world. So God must value me based upon what I do and based upon who I am. In fact, think about, think about how the world evaluates their own importance based upon wisdom. 
The world views those who are smart, those who are the intellectuals, those who are the elites of society as, as the, really the most important. They have the corner on wisdom. And, and so therefore, people believe, sometimes they believe, that, that God must be impressed with what I know, right? I mean, God must look at me and say, wow, that person's a pretty smart guy. I like him a lot. And again, let's, let's be clear, like I said last week, God is not anti-knowledge, right? He wants us actually to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So we actually should grow in knowledge. But God does not evaluate your worth based upon how much you know. He's not impressed with your knowledge. He's the God of all knowledge. Why would he be impressed with the little knowledge that you know? He does not save because you have high intellect. Your smarts don't make you better than other people, and therefore one God would choose. Your intellect doesn't earn you any merit before God. I think about Nicodemus. I think he's probably a good example of a person who they would have esteemed highly in society. He was a Pharisee. Remember, he came to meet with Jesus at night. He would have been a person who, as a Pharisee, maybe he didn't, but many of the Pharisees boasted in their own knowledge. They had a lot of knowledge of the scriptures. In fact, when he met with Jesus, one of the first things he said was this. He said, Rabbi, we, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless uh, the signs that you do unless God is with him. And, and the point is, it's interesting that he leads with this. He's like, this is what we know. This is, this is where our wisdom is. And I'm not saying he necessarily even said that in pride, but the point is, this is all he's got, right? This is, this is what we know. And Jesus did not respond, well, you are a Pharisee. You are wise. That's why I like you. He actually said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, your relationship with God is not based upon your knowledge. It's not based upon your status in society. It's based upon God's work in you through the, through the new birth. Think about how the world evaluates their own importance based upon their power. The world considers those who are powerful, those who have great achievements, those who dominate as those who who should rank high in significance. I mean, what's going on in our world over in the Ukraine is one country and really a leader within that country who, who tries to perceive that he's powerful, right? Look how strong he is. You know, he can ride on a horse bareback without his shirt on. You've seen that picture? And people, people actually view life, and we look at that and we go, well, that guy's wicked. Yeah, he's definitely... Got a lot of problems and a big problem before God. But the truth is we view each other and ourselves in much the same way. We want people to view us in a certain way based upon our achievements, our status, our might. But God does not look at people like we look at people. He doesn't care about human strength and human accomplishments like that. I think about the prison guard in Acts chapter 16. Now, here's this hulking mass of masculinity. Like, he is a Roman soldier, right? When this guy walked down the street, I mean, I don't imagine he was a puny little guy with a little sword, right? I mean, this was a Roman soldier with a sword. He's a powerful guy. People respected him. And if you didn't, you would respect him. But God did not save him in his strength. You know when God saved him? He sent an earthquake and this guy was so afraid that he, something was going to happen to him because these, everyone escaped, that he took a sword. He was going to kill himself. And it was that moment, in that time of weakness, is when God saved him. In other words, God doesn't save the strong, he saves the weak. And that's the point. Think about how the world evaluates their own importance based upon their prestige or their prominence. The world thinks, well, if I'm... If I'm a part of this family, like I was born in this family, you know, if, if my family was, is British and they're from the house of Windsor, like that makes you important, right? And isn't it interesting how we as Americans love to follow the, the British royal family, even though we actually fought a war over that? 
But the point is, we, we, see, we see people in certain positions, whether they be celebrities or whether they even have a certain ethnicity, and we say, oh, those people have more importance than these people. And we, we think that God even views the world like that. Oh, my parents are Christians, so I, I'm probably okay. Oh, I go to church. I'm associated with that church, so I must be a Christian. But God's call isn't based upon nobility or birth or prestige or ethnicity or anything like that. When you think about it, Paul, the apostle, would have been the poster boy for God's calling someone because of their heritage, right? Think, remember Paul, the apostle's heritage? Philippians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, this is what he says. Paul says, as his testimony, I was advanced in Judaism beyond many of my own age and among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. So he's saying, like, I was the most prominent person. I was the most zealous religious person. Nobody followed the law like I did. And we're not even talking about some strange Eastern religion. We're talking about Judaism. Like, he followed the, the law of Moses. I mean, this guy is the most spiritual guy you've ever met. He's got the pedigree. He's from, he's, he's a Jewish person. He's circumcised the eighth day. He's of the house of Benjamin. I mean, he's got it. And if anyone could put up their, their credentials and say, God likes me, God calls me because of who I am and what I do, it would be the apostle Paul. But what's interesting is Paul came to the conclusion that none of those things mattered. In Philippians 3, he says, I consider all those things like a big pile of dung. Like they're all lost. It's as valuable as, as a big pile of you know what. But that changed. Paul's heart changed. And what changed it? Look at, look at the rest of verse 15. Galatians 1.15. When he, who is that? That's God the Father. When he who had set me apart before I was born, there's election, and who called me by his grace. So God's call to save Paul <clears throat> was not based upon his prestige, his heritage, his religion. It was by the grace of God. It was his sovereign grace. And so what then is God's call based upon? If it's not based upon my merit, my heritage, my earthly status, what then is God's grace and his call to save me based upon. Well, verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 and 27 talk about, verse 26, I should say, talks about his calling, and verse 27 and 28 talk about sovereign election. Like, let me read these verses and show this to you. Verse 26, for consider your calling, so here's the divine calling, Brothers, not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised spies in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. The world thinks this, that that God values those who are smart. God values those who are accomplished, those who have a high status. But God says, no, I actually choose those who are foolish, those who are feeble, those who are the rejects. Now, Paul's point here is not, is not that, that all Christians are idiots, weak, and rejects. His point actually is that Compared to God, everyone is foolish. Everyone is feeble. Everyone is lowly. And his choice then is not based upon who you are or what you do. It's based upon what he decides. Therefore, the only ones God saves are the ones who recognize their lowliness, their weakness, their foolishness. God doesn't call someone to be saved because of who they are or what they do. And his point here is this, that God's election of a person to be saved is not based upon human standards. 
You cannot say, I'm in Christ because I did this or I have this. Not based upon anything you've done. It's only by his grace. In fact, look at verses 27 and 28. Three times in these two verses, Paul says that God chose. He says in verse 27, but God chose what is foolish. God chose what is weak. Verse 28, God chose what is low and despised. This is a reference to God's sovereign election. The word chose here, again, is an aorist passive. So it happened in the past at a point in time. It's a passive. It's something God did for you and to you. And it, again, relates to salvation from God's perspective. And the question then is, when did this happen? Like, when did God save us? Or when did God elect us? When did he choose us? Well, this word is actually the same word found in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 which says, even as he, that's God the Father, chose us in him when? Before the foundations of the world. So before you were alive, before you were born, before this world was even created, before there was anything else but God, God did this. He chose us in him. A few years ago, we decided to surprise our kids with a trip to Disneyland and we were going to meet some friends down there, and we were going to first start at Denny's. There's like a Denny's around the corner there, and we were going to start there, and then we were going to tell our kids at Denny's and then go to Disneyland. And, uh, and so, you know, leading up to that day, uh, there was a lot of questions as, what are we going to do tomorrow, you know, that morning? What are we going to do today? We got up really early in the morning. We packed some of the kids' bags. They knew something was happening, but especially the little ones were asking a lot of questions, you know, why are we getting up so early in the morning? Why do we have to drive through Los Angeles? You know, why are these homeless people? You know, with all these kind of questions, you know, why are we going all the way down here? And there were a lot of questions the kids had. And we would tell them in general, we're going to do something. It's going to be fun. Trust us. We're going to have a good time. And those who trusted us, at least up to that point, they had a good time. <laughs> and, and sometimes it's hard to trust in those situations. It's hard to trust when you just don't know, right? It's like, okay, I, I, you're my parents, and generally you do what's good for me, <laughs> and you, you're promising you're going to do something good for me. And in, when you're in that situation, sometimes it's difficult to trust, but it's best to trust, isn't it? Especially if you're going to Disneyland and you don't know it. And I view the topic of God's election and call, divine call, in much the same way. I don't understand it all. I have a lot of questions, but I trust it's true. God says it, that settles it. And again, there's a lot of questions you might have. You might not understand it either. And guess what? I can pretty much confidently say you don't understand it because you have the mind of a man or of a woman. You have a finite mind. God has an infinite mind. But someday when we get to heaven, we'll be able to see Salvation from God's perspective. I don't know how clearly we'll see it and understand everything, but I definitely think we'll understand it a lot more than we do now. And for now, God wants us to at least consider it, to consider what he says, to believe it, actually to allow it to humble us. He wants us to consider the divine call to allow it to humble our hearts before him. God called you based upon his desire to be kind to you. Not because of your wisdom, not because of your power, not because of your prominence. And in doing it this way, God actually confounds the world's value system. In fact, look in verse 27. Notice God shames the world. Look in verse 28. He brings the world's value system to nothing. And once again here, we see the, the irony of God the world shames those who don't match their values. If you don't match the values of this world, you're going to be canceled, right? If you, if, you, if you don't measure up to their standards, they'll bring you down. And God says, actually, there's coming a day when I will shame the world and I will bring them low. I will expose their foolishness. Now, the question might 
come up, why would Paul bring up divine calling and election when he's speaking about preaching the gospel? Right? A lot of people see this as incompatible. Why would you, why would you talk about God's divine call, God's sovereign election, relating to cross-centered preaching? That doesn't seem to make sense. Well, it does if you understand the doctrine of God's divine call and election. Cross-centered preaching is declaring the good news of Christ and expecting God to work. It's getting up in the pulpit like this, or it's sitting down with your friends and saying, here's the gospel, and I believe God works through the gospel. He can powerfully save. Therefore, I don't need to scheme. I don't need to craft. I don't need to deceive. I don't need to manipulate. I don't need to try to try to convince that person or berate that person or manipulate that person into receiving Christ. All I have to do is present the gospel. One of the best classes I had in college, one of the best classes I had as far as one class was when a teacher, professor came in and he didn't have any notes with him or anything and he sat in the very front and he said, well, we're gonna have either a short class or a long class. And he said, what we're gonna do is I'm gonna be up here and you're gonna convince me to come to Christ. And so we're just gonna, you know, spend this whole class time and you're gonna try to convince me. And, and once you convince me to come to Christ, then I'm gonna end the class, we're gonna be done. And so people presented some amazing arguments. You had people that were bringing out science um, facts and you had some people that were saying, oh, well, you know, you know, if it's a better option to trust in Christ because at least if you die, you go to heaven. But the other way, you know, it's, so it's like weigh your options, which is the best one. And so we had those amazing arguments in there and everything. And, and in the end, I, I think it was about 45 minutes or so of us all giving the wrong answer. And, uh, and in the end of the day, someone spoke up and they said, well, the truth is there's nothing we can do to convince you to come to Christ. And all we can do is present the gospel and call you to come to Christ, and God's the one who saves. And he said, class dismissed. And that's the power of the gospel. That's the power of preaching the gospel. Because we can trust in God's word and his spirit to work. We don't have to trust in gimmicks or man-contrived tricks. We just have to be faithful and you have family, and you have friends, and we have people in the city who need the gospel. What are we to do? Be faithful to give the gospel. You're saying, it's got to be something more. I got to have some kind of trick. Well, it'd be good to have a life that matches the gospel, but proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then last, cross-centered preaching demonstrates God alone deserves glory in man has no reason to boast in himself. God alone deserves glory, and man has no reason to boast in himself. Verse 26 through 28 instruct us to consider how God saves by his divine call. And then verse 29 points to us to points us to the reason why he saves this way. Why is it that God saves in that way? Verse 29 so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God saves according to his wisdom and his power for this reason, so he will receive the glory. You see, God created this world for his, for his glory. God created you to glorify him. God saves you for his glory. God alone deserves the glory so that no one might boast in the presence of God. You see, friends, God alone is good. God alone is great. God alone saves, and God alone deserves the glory. I heard a preacher say it like this. If you contributed anything to your salvation, then there would be room for you to boast. I mean, if you helped out with 10%, then you could have 10% of boasting. Even if you helped out with 0.0001%, then you could boast to that degree. But because salvation is holy of God, because salvation is all of God, by God, and for God, therefore you cannot and should not boast. Salvation was not bought by you. Salvation was not earned by you. 
Salvation is not based upon you. It's not initiated by you. It's not because of you. It's not in partnership with you. It's not sustained by you. It's not kept by you. It's not promised by you. It's not dependent on you. Because if it was, then you should receive the glory. No, salvation is all of God. And so therefore, only God should receive the glory. Imagine if I went out in the parking lot and found one of your cars out there. Maybe it was one of my favorite. Maybe it was a really nice car. And I walked up to that, next to that car, and I looked at that car, and as everyone's coming now, I said, isn't this a great car? I, I have a pretty great car here, don't I? This is pretty amazing how great my car is. This is pretty, and everyone would come out, and what would they think? Pastor Ben's lost it. Something's wrong with me. Why? Well, because it's not my car. Like, I didn't buy the car. I don't own the car. What a foolish thing to, say, to boast in this car, boast in myself because of the car. Now, if you own the car, maybe you even in your garage for a couple months or years, you built the car, you might be able to boast, right? I saved up and I bought this or I built this, but not if you don't own it. I think it's the same way with salvation. If salvation was earned by you or you contributed in any way, then you could boast, but it's not. Salvation is of the Lord. God the Father, he predestined, he elected. God the Father sent the Son, God the Son, to defeat sin and death through his work on the cross. The Father, by the Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead. God the Spirit breathed out the scriptures. God the Son sent the Spirit to convict of sin. God the Father calls a sinner to be saved. God the Spirit regenerates the sinner. God justifies. God sanctifies. God holds us onto us. God sustains. God the Son will come back, and the work of the triune God will finally be to glorify us all in his presence. And that's why we say, glory be to God alone. Look at verse 30. We see this again. If you don't have it by now, Paul is going to keep beating you over the head with it. Verse 30, and because of him, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. The him is God the Father. Who is credited with a person being in Christ? It's not you, right? Again, hopefully we have this by now. It's because of God the Father, not because of your baptism, not because of your family background, not because of your attendance, not because you count certain deeds, not because you go to church, not because you give, not because of you, because of him, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. And then notice how he talks about the benefits that we have because we're in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification, and redemption. Notice what it means that we are united with Christ. Now he is our wisdom. Jesus Christ is our true wisdom. We look to his word for wisdom. He is our righteousness. At conversion, God the Father declared us righteous because of Jesus, and he imputed the righteousness of Christ to us. He is our sanctification. That is that he has separated us unto himself, and he's transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, and our destiny will be to be like Jesus Christ. That's sanctification. He is our redemption. This is speaking of the purchase price of his death on the cross. And all of this is done again. Why? Well, he's going to tell you again in verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord and that there, my friends, is our application for today. That if you have anything in this world to boast in, it should be in that right there. And Paul quotes here Jeremiah chapter 9 to demonstrate this is not a new truth. This is the eternal purpose of God to bring glory to himself. God's eternal purpose is to do that which most glorifies him. And so, what does it say here? You are to boast. Is that what it says? Look at verse 31. 
let the one who boasts, yes, it does say that, boast in what? In the Lord. Not ourselves. We love our church, but not even our church. Not in popular figures, not in our favorite theologians, not even in our country. Let's be thankful for our country. We are to boast in the Lord, to glorify him alone. Let's remember this. This points back to the purpose of our life. Our lives are to be lived for the glory of God. We are to live in a way that boasts in him, to think and speak in a way that reflects who he is and to honor him. So I think it's probably good for us to consider if we are living a life that boasts in the Lord. I mean, if not, like look back and consider your calling. Consider the divine call that saved you. Consider that God didn't save you based upon you. It was by his own grace. Consider the salvation of the Lord. Is the Lord the one that we boast in? What do we lift up as great ourselves, our heroes? Is our true boast in the Lord? What would it look like? What would it look like for you to live a life tomorrow that boasts in God? What would it look like for you to speak words that, that honor God? What would it look like for you at a table to eat and drink in a way that glorifies God? How should our thoughts and lives change to truly reflect his glory? You see, the work of Christ, the work of God to save us should humble us and cause us to boast in him. Let's pray.